Sunday, I began to talk to you about the basic doctrines of grace. And I told you that theologians have, have uh, devised five terms to describe the basics of the doctrines of grace. These things, of course, come from the Bible. The terms don't necessarily come from the Bible, but the doctrines do. And it is our desire, of course, to preach the Bible and nothing but the Bible. It is our rule of faith, that is what we believe, and our rule of practice, that is what we do, our behavior. And so today we go to the second of these great doctrines, cardinal principles of the faith. It is the doctrine of unconditional election. Last Sunday I spoke about depravity. This is the doctrine that has to do with the sin of man. The original sin in the Garden of Eden and how that sin has been transferred to every descendant of Adam, including you and me today. Now, if we truly believe that man is totally depraved, totally sinful by nature, we must recognize that salvation, if there's to be any, has to come from God. It has to be exclusively by grace if man is completely incapacitated. If you can imagine man having fallen into a pit where there are no ladders, no step stools, no notches in the rock, just a big old ugly pit, and he's so deep in that pit that he can even barely see the light up there, you'll begin to get the picture of the kind of condition that man is in by nature. He has fallen into a pit, and the problem is the bottom of the pit is miry clay so that every time he attempts to take a step upward, he really just sinks deeper into it. Then you realize that intervention from an outside source is necessary, right? In order to get someone out of that pit, it takes someone who's already out of the pit to reach down and to pluck those out that he would so choose to pluck out. I've heard it said that everybody's in a pit and they're in this condition of fallenness, and it's up to the preacher to come along and throw down the, the rope of the gospel and invite people to grab hold of that rope and pull themselves out. Well, if you've ever taken about five seconds to examine that, you realize there's one serious flaw with that theory. And that is that not only are all the people in the pit, the preacher's in the pit too. <laughs> he, can't have, he cannot be in a position to throw a rope down for he himself has fallen too. So what does it take? It takes God, who is not in the pit, to reach down and pull those out of the pit in order that they might have their feet planted upon a rock, as David said in Psalm 40. Now, God does this to a great and vast host of people all around this world in every age of time. God has done it, and God continues to do it. Now that reaching down and plucking out of that mass of humanity in the pit is called unconditional election. God does not wait for his children to grab hold of the rope, for they are dead. The fall was so bad that it actually incapacitated them. They can't grab hold of the rope. They're dead. He doesn't wait for them to become lovable. He doesn't wait for them to make a move toward God. But he, in his sovereign love, reaches down when he knew they would never reach up and grabs them from that pit and plants them in his own marvelous kingdom. That's the doctrine of eternal, unconditional election. The Bible is full of it. You cannot read the Bible and miss this doctrine. It is from cover to cover. 
I'd like to refer you as a beginning point today to the second book of Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And in the 13th verse, we begin reading, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you. No problems there. Brethren beloved of the Lord, no problem there. Because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. We see in the verse that God has from the beginning chosen you unto salvation. You did not choose God. God chose you. In the final analysis, it doesn't matter whether a child of God has chosen God. What really matters is, has God chosen the child? What finally matters is not whether an individual has accepted Christ, but whether Christ has accepted him. That's what finally and ultimately matters. Now, let's look at the text before we go to a bunch of others in the Bible. Brethren beloved, he says, you are beloved of the Lord because, here's the reason for God's love, God hath from the beginning chosen you. The first thing we notice about election is that it is from the beginning. That is, it took place before you ever had opportunity to participate in it. Okay? Ephesians 1.4 teaches this doctrine as well when he says, According as he hath chosen us, chosen us, election, he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. There it is, before the world even began. God chose us. One day I was talking to a, an individual who told me that it was as simple as this. God voted for you, and the devil voted against you. And now it's up to you to cast the deciding vote. I looked at him and I said, Brother, the polls were closed before the world even began. <laughs> I believe in election, but I believe it was an election that took place before the world even began. From the beginning, God hath chosen you unto salvation. Election is from the beginning. Now, since God has no beginning, we obviously must recognize that Paul here speaks that election is from the beginning of the world. Now, I personally believe it was before the world began based on his writings in other places, but here he gives us this bit of information to let us know that as long as the world has stood, election has been in place. I believe that there has never been a time when God did not have an elect people. You were elect in His mind and purpose. If you're elect today, you were before the world ever began. You were His in His mind and purpose. He saw you. He knew you. He loved you from all eternity past. The reason I can say that is that there is really no way, as far as we know, to reckon time before time began. Before there was movement... There was no way to reckon time. You don't have an anchor point. You don't have a standard. So before time, God had always been. God who is unchangeable had always had an elect people. There never came a day when he said, Oh, I've got a good idea. I think I will, I think I will create some people and I will elect some people and I will have a family. I don't think God ever came to that point to say, I will make the decision to do this. Because God is unchangeable, He has always in His character had a people in mind. 
Okay, God hath from the beginning. The first thing we notice is that God chose us from the beginning before you ever had a chance to participate in that choice. He says, God hath from the beginning chosen you unto salvation. Election is unto salvation. I do believe that we serve a God who is an electing God. This is the way he operates. I may spend a little more time later, but in the ninth chapter of Romans, we learn that if nowhere else in the Bible, but certainly there are many other places. The ninth chapter of Romans teaches us very clearly that God is an electing God. This is the way he operates. Do you remember in the ninth chapter of Romans when God says, um, I am the potter and you are the clay? Hath not the potter power over the clay to make of one lump a vessel unto honor and of another lump a vessel unto dishonor? The potter has that power, right? You can take the same piece of clay and form some beautiful piece of pottery that will sell for thousands of dollars or you can make a mess of it and it may sell for 10 cents. You can take a piece of wood, some of you who are kind of handy with that sort of thing, and create something beautiful. Somebody like me who never had done much of that might make some real mess out of the same piece of wood. The potter, the craftsman, has the power over those elements, you see. God, then, is the one who has the power to make of one lump of flesh a vessel to honor, salvation, and of another vessel of flesh, a vessel to dishonor. God has that power, and God exercises that power and right. Now, election is unto salvation. What this means is that God chose His people to be saved. He did not choose them to be savable. He did not choose them to be potentially saved. He chose them to be saved. God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation. Now we will prove before I sit down, Lord willing, today that all that God chose will be in heaven. Every one without the loss of one. This verse teaches that, if no other, but we do have many others we can, we can rely on. Beginning, God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through two things here. Sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. It may sound to you like God is saying that he elected you after you believe the truth. A lot of folks believe that about this verse. They think that if you will believe the truth, then God will choose you. That's the final analysis of a doctrine that's very common today. That's the logical conclusion of a doctrine very popular today. If you will choose God, God will choose you. Is that what that said? No. It said the reason that you are sanctified by the Spirit and the reason that you believe the truth is that you were chosen to. Do you begin to see that this business of salvation is totally out of the hands of man and completely in the hands of God? Let me ask you, does that unnerve you? Brother Bradley tells about the time years ago when he preached a fiery message about salvation by grace and how that it was totally of the Lord and there was nothing that man could do to bring about his own eternal salvation. And this little lady came forward after the service that night to talk to the preacher and she just said, she said, I just, she said, I don't know what to say. I'm so upset about what you've preached tonight. 
She said, I have labored and I have prayed and I have toiled and I have witnessed and all of this and I have thought until tonight that I had an impact on the destiny of people's souls. And now you get up here tonight and you tell me that salvation is completely by the grace of God and that man has nothing to do with it. That just upsets me terribly. Brother Bradley said, let me get this straight. He said, you came here tonight believing that salvation was at least in part dependent upon what you do. And you were comfortable with that. Now I get up here tonight and read to you from the Bible and teach you tonight that God has it in His hands totally and you're upset? <laughs> get it? Does it upset you that we serve a God who runs the universe according to His sovereign purposes? If that upsets you, I'm worried about you. Because God is so much more skilled than the best leader on earth that I am so delighted that he's in charge of getting the sun up every morning and putting it to bed at night. I speak as a man, a layman. He is in charge of making sure that the day is the right length each day and of making sure that the planets don't bump into each other and of making sure that his children walk in the path that he would have them to walk. He is responsible for seeing that they ultimately, when they press a dying pillow, have the assurance of salvation and can be taken from that body of clay that is decaying and dying into his very presence. He's the one that has that in his control. God hath from the beginning chosen you unto salvation through one sanctification of the Spirit. God chose you to be sanctified by the Spirit. That's what he's saying. He chose you to be set apart by the Holy Spirit of God. If you're set apart today, if you look different than the world, act different than the world, think differently from the world, then that's an evidence that God chose you before the world even began. God has chosen you unto salvation through sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification of the Spirit takes place during our lifetime here. Election took place before the world began. During our lifetime, God makes that manifest and sanctification of the Spirit takes on two, I believe has, uh, has two aspects. One is regeneration, right? God reaches down and He sees a person dead in sin who's elect of God. He loved him from all eternity past and what does God do? He says the hour's coming, now is, when the dead, the dead in trespasses and sins, shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. God reaches down and he finds one of those covenant vessels of mercy, one that he's loved for all eternity. He's living in this world. He may be an infant still in mother's womb. He may be a grown man. He, she may be a grown woman or an infant or an old lady. Whatever the case, God finds the person at the time he so chooses and he gives life to the dead. That's the first aspect of sanctification by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit reaches the heart, sets that person apart, writes the law in his heart, makes him a new creature in Christ. Now that's called irresistible grace, and we'll get to that two weeks from now, Lord willing. That's the first aspect of sanctification by the Spirit. The second is that once that grace is in you, guess what? It never does leave you alone. God never reaches the point where he throws his hands up in exasperation and says, Oh, I just can't stand this person. I don't know why I ever elected him in the first place. <laughs> I've wondered a few times if God did that with me. But I know from the Bible that he has not. 
That is, that he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it, will keep on in continuing performance of it until the day of Jesus Christ. Once the Holy Spirit is in the heart, he never leaves you. Once you're saved, you're always saved. We'll talk about that three weeks from now, Lord willing, okay? Point. If the Spirit of God dwells in a person's heart, he will experience sanctification by the Spirit in a practical way. Do you believe today that you are a little closer to God than you were a year ago or ten years ago? Then that's evidence that God is working in your heart and life. If you believe that you are growing in grace and the knowledge of the truth, that is evidence that you were chosen to that before the world even began. See that? God hath from the beginning chosen you unto salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Sometimes we stumble at this point. We say, well, what about somebody who's a, a Muslim, for instance? Is it possible that a Muslim could go to heaven? Well, first of all, people don't go to heaven based on what they believe, do they? The children of Israel did not go through the Red Sea based on their ability to believe. They got up to the Red Sea and they doubted, but God led them through anyway, right? Pharaoh's army got up to the Red Sea and they believed they could get through and they died. <laughs> and so our rescue, our salvation is not based on what we believe. But I would like to submit to you today that it is biblical that every child of God, every heir of promise, every soul that's elect of God will believe in Christ. Now, why do I say that? Do I say that because we preachers are so effective in teaching the doctrine? <laughs> oh, heaven forbid. That's a foolish thought, isn't it? Why do I say that? I say that because we believe in a God who has complete salvation that he gives to his people. In the ninth chapter, pardon me, the eighth chapter of Hebrews, the tenth verse, he says, this is the covenant that I will make after those days. I will put my laws into their mind and I will write them on their hearts and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. Now we learn that some people are going to be educated right here, not necessarily by preachers, not even necessarily by the reading of the word. They shall be educated by the spirit of God almighty. I will write my law in their heart and imprint upon their minds and they, they, those elect people, shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Okay. He says, It's not going to be your responsibility to go around and teach every man your neighbor and every man your brother to know the Lord. It will not be your job to do that. Why? For all shall know me. This is a remarkable thing to me. So many times we try to do a little bit of what God says He's already done. We want to tell somebody to know the Lord. He says they shall know the Lord. Now, if you tell somebody to know the Lord and they already know the Lord, you haven't done a lot of damage, have you? <laughs> if I were to walk up to somebody here I'd never met before and uh, I were to say, I haven't met you, and what's your name, and so forth, and we were to get acquainted, then that would be considered a normal conversation, right? 
But if I were to walk up, most of you I know pretty well, and if I were to walk up to you and say, I don't think I've ever met you before, you'd probably look at me a little strange, but you'd say, well, my name is. <laughs> and we'd kind of get reacquainted, right? You'd think I was a little strange, but it wouldn't be fatal at all, would it? If you walk up to somebody and say, I'd like to tell you about the best friend I've got in the world, and I'd like for you to meet him too. If you were to do that, and that person already knows the Lord, you haven't done a lot of damage. You've just reacquainted him with somebody he already knew. Okay? Point is, in order for people to go to heaven, God is not depending on people to circle this globe and be sure that everybody gets reached with the gospel. God isn't dependent on that. What's he dependent on? His covenant before the world began to elect all his family. Every one of them, every one of them shall know the Lord from the least to the greatest. Now our text says, God hath from the beginning chosen you unto salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. How do they believe the truth? They believe it because it's been placed within their heart. Now Jesus tells us what the truth is, rather who the truth is. In the 14th chapter of John, the 5th verse, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Who's the truth? Jesus Christ is the truth. They shall know Jesus Christ. I've been told many times, somebody told me a while back, this is not, has not been verified, but I sure hope it gets verified because it's a great story. <laughs> I've been told a long time about this lady named Helen Keller, who, of course, was a blind, deaf, mute, and Helen Keller, in very early life, was given a, a, a godly teacher. And this lady began to talk to Helen Keller about Christ, who made the worlds, who saved his people from their sins, who lives in the hearts and lives of his children. And this little girl responded, I have known such a one for a long time. Thank you for telling me his name. There may be some folks out there who don't know the name of Jesus Christ, but they know Jesus Christ because they've been taught in the heart why God chose them to that before the world even began. What we begin to see is that what is going on here with regard to people being saved in this time world is not just a haphazard happening. It is an occurrence which was planned before the world even started. Awesome thought, isn't it? <laughs> Did you know that the very notion of your belief is something that God chose to do in you before the world began? Okay, that's an exegesis of the text. God hath from the beginning chosen you unto salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel, he says, to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love this text because it covers the whole gamut. It covers the whole ball field, if you will. What does he do? He talks about God's eternal arrangements. And then he says, unto this truth, unto an embracing of this truth, God has called you by the gospel. It's not the effectual call. God does that sometimes in the presence of the gospel, but probably most of the time in the absence of the gospel because the gospel can't reach an infant in his mother's womb as he did John the Baptist. 
Spirit of God can reach a person anywhere, whether in the presence of the gospel or in the absence of the gospel. That's not the point. The point is that once a person has been regenerated who was elect of God, he says the gospel call goes out to them. I might hold my hands up here today and say, what's between my hands? And you would say, nothing. And that's what it looks like. Nothing. But the fact is, if you brought the right kind of receiving set in here, you would know there are things between my hands. There are probably baseball games going on right now between my hands. There are probably some good TV shows and some not-too-good TV shows. and There are probably a jillion radio waves between my hands just <laughs> broadcasting every kind of confusion. All that's between my hands, but... You only can see it or know it if you have the right receiving set, right? Well, I'm telling you that God, before the world began, chose his people to have a receiving set. The gospel call goes out at large anywhere possible, but only the elect are capable of responding to it. Only the elect. Whereunto he called you, the chosen, by our gospel. Now what I would like to do next is take you through some other scriptures in the Bible, and I again, as I did last Sunday, would ask you not to try to turn to these passages because it's a lot of turning and I'm not going to expound these texts. I just want you to realize the Bible has a lot to say about election. So I have a list of scriptures that I'm going to quickly read without much comment and just encourage you to listen in high gear. In the 65th Psalm, in the fourth verse, Blessed is the man whom thou choosest, and calls us to approach unto thee. What is this but election and irresistible grace? Blessed is the man whom thou choosest, and calls us to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. What he's saying is some people were chosen and drawn by God to him, to dwell in his courts. Pretty clear, isn't it? Psalm 65, 4. In the 49th chapter of Isaiah, the 16th verse, I love the personal touch of this one. He says, Behold, I have graven thee upon the palm of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. Isaiah 49, 16. He says, I have graven you upon the palm of my hand. Sometimes when we talk about election, somebody says, well, that's just some diabolical villain up there in heaven that they call God who reached down and just scooped out a big mass of humanity and dumped them over here and called them the elect. Not so. This shows us the very personal nature of God to reach down and select one and to engrave that individual upon the palm of his hand, to reach down and select another and another and another and another. Beautiful. Somebody says, well, now, I don't like this doctrine of election because it keeps people out of heaven. No, I'm telling you today, the only reason I can preach this from a positive standpoint, the only reason I can preach this, get excited, my eyes can light up, I can wave my arms and yell and all that and get so excited about this thing is that were it not for election, nobody would be in heaven. Election is that which rescues, not that which condemns. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest, I have graven thee upon the palm of my hands. Matthew 121, we come to the New Testament. The angel says, She shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save who? 
His people from their sins. A reference to the elect of God to be saved from their sins. John 6, 37. All that the Father giveth me. These are the words of Jesus. All that the Father giveth me. Who's that? That's the elect. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. There's irresistible grace. Two weeks from now. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. That's three weeks from now. Perseverance. <laughs> All that the Father giveth me. Who did God give the Son? The elect. Those chosen by God. Romans 8.29 doesn't use the term choice or election. But he uses another term which describes this action as well. Romans 8.29 says, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Some people balk at the term predestination. What does it mean? What does it entail? Predestinate means to prefix the destiny of. To prefix the destiny. God before the world began set up the destiny of every one of the elect. Is there a chance that one of them will fall out of the hand of God? Is there a chance that one of them won't make that destiny? No, we are dealing with a God who always fulfills His purposes. He set it up before the world began, prefixed their destiny, they shall land there safely without the loss of one. For whom he did foreknow, that is people he did forelove, the word know means love intimately. Those whom he knew intimately before the world began, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Oh my. Anybody who wants to leave the predestination part of that verse out also has to leave out the second part, which no one wants to do. Don't we all long to be more and more conformed to the image of the Son of God? We want to be like Him. We want to be sin-free, sinless. We want to be strong, able to be victorious. We want to be like Christ, as well we should. You know how we're going to get there? Predestination takes you there. Predestination is a friend of God's family and not a foe. Whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Uh, many is an interesting term right there, because many people think if you believe in election, you must believe there's only a tiny minority going to heaven. I don't know how many people will be in heaven, but I know that it's people out of every nation, every kindred, every people, and every tongue. Now the term kindred in Revelation 5.9 means every grandfather group. I can honestly and truthfully say that out of every family in the Roanoke Valley, somebody's going to heaven. Maybe a bunch of them, maybe a few of them. But out of every family in the whole world. <laughs> That's pretty marvelous, isn't it? And we see the comprehensive nature then of the grace of God to elect and to choose these people before the world even began. Many brethren, moreover whom he did predestinate, then he also called, effectual, irresistible grace. Then he also called, he also justified, and whom he justified, he glorified. And then the verse I love is verse 31 of Romans 8 that says, What shall we say then to these things? What will we say? Some would say, oh, I want nothing to do with that doctrine. I, I detest it. I don't like that. I don't appreciate the fact that God's running my life. <laughs> we might be like that little forgotten beatitude that says, blessed is he whosoever is not offended in me. In other words, whoever it is that doesn't get upset at the way I run my business, 
Blessed are you if you don't get upset at that. What are you going to say to the fact that God has decreed where you will spend eternity? What shall we say then? If God be for us, who can be against us? Can circumstance be against us with regard to our destiny? You say, I grew up in a poverty-stricken place. Everybody around me was immoral. All the churches went about their business doing their bible things, and nobody ministered to me. Is that going to stand in the way of one of God's elect? Not on your life. You say, I, I never had the opportunity to hear the gospel. I was aborted. My mother didn't even love me enough to let me see the light of day. I died before I even saw the light of day. Is that going to stand in the way of the salvation of one of the elect of God? No. You say, well, I'm kind of the kind of person that's a rebel. And I've been taught all these truths all my life, but I just rebel against them a lot. Is that going to stand in the way of the salvation of one of God's elect? No. The point is God conquers all of that because if He is for us, who can be against us? Who or what? Next one. Romans 11.5 makes reference to election. Even so, he says, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. You know why there's still some believers in the world? You know why there is a, there is a Christian mindset that yet exists in this nation? It is because there is a remnant left according to the election of grace. God has His elect people where He needs them to be, where He would have them to be. 1 Peter 1.2 says that we are elect. He's writing to the elect. Um, 1 Peter 1.2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, there's that word again, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Very same thing Paul was talking about in 2 Thessalonians 2 that was our text. God has elected us according to His foreknowledge even before the world began. Just a few verses to let you know something about what the Bible says on the doctrine of election. Very quickly. Let me deal with two objections to election. There are people, believe it or not, who don't like this idea. There are some who look at the Bible and say the Bible doesn't even teach it. One day my folks were at home and some people came and knocked on the door said, we'd like to talk to you about the Bible. And Dad said, sure, come on in. I'd be glad to talk to you about the Bible anytime. And they sat down and began to talk. And very quickly, Dad said, what do you believe about election? I said, well, the Bible doesn't teach election. You know, God gives a free will to everybody. And if they will just simply choose God, that's all there is to it. God said, my dad said, well, wait a minute. Um, I believe the, my Bible says that um, God elected his people before the foundation of the world. What about that? said, well, that's not in the Bible. That's just something you've always heard. Dad said, well, now wait just a minute. I, th I think it is. And he started looking around in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, you know. Fourth verse, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. First Peter 1, 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Romans 11, 5, a remnant according to the election of grace. Romans 8, 29, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. I believe it's in the Bible. How about you? <laughs> What are some objections that are common? One, 
people say, this is unfair of God. It's unfair of God to elect some and to leave others out. May I say of those who are left behind, election does them no damage. I said that once, I'm saying it a second time. That's an often misunderstood point about the doctrine of election. Somebody says, what kind of a God would it be that would create individuals and then reach down and pull some out to, sa to save them and then condemn others to eternal torment? What kind of a God would do that? First of all, we need to be reminded of who God is and who we are. First things first. Our scale of what's fair and what's not probably doesn't exactly line up with God's, does it? For instance, when I go to the hospitals to visit people, my heart is heavy. How about yours? You walk in there and you see people suffering all over the place. Sometimes people are groaning in pain, yelling for help. Breaks your heart. Had I the power, I would heal every person in that hospital immediately. Of course, I don't have that power. But if I did, I would. God has that power. But he chooses not to do that. And yet he's a whole lot more merciful and more compassionate and more patient and more loving than I could ever hope to be. When you get that one explained, come back. <laughs> what I'm saying is that our scale of what is right and wrong is often skewed. Our idea of what is fair and what is unfair oftentimes doesn't line up with the way God sees it. What are those who are left? God does no disservice to them. If you can picture today all of Adam's race, fallen and justly condemned to eternal hell, God can't look upon sin, so he can't take them to live with him. Sin means they've got to die, right? The wages of sin is death. They've got to go somewhere because they're eternal souls. All of them are on the road to hell. Somebody a while back told me, we're all working for the same place. <laughs> You've heard that probably a million times, haven't you? We're all working for the same place and always say, yeah, and if it weren't for the grace of God, we'd get there too. <laughs> That's where we're headed. Everybody's going that way. Everybody. So when God in mercy reaches down and pulls a great number of those people out by election, sovereign election, He doesn't injure those left behind. They're exactly where they were to start with. But He greatly blesses those who are lifted out. The wonder is not that God leaves some behind. The wonder is that God would choose any when we see the depravity of the race. Do you see that? Now the Apostle Paul anticipated this argument, this objection. He anticipated it. In fact, I love the way he did that. Two or three times in the Bible I've run across right lately where people fire back at Paul. He gives the opponent's argument. And interestingly, I've gotten the same fire <laughs> a few times. And I think, thank you, Lord, for that little assurance. I must be preaching the truth because it got the same response Paul got. <laughs> I love that. 
Paul anticipated this response in the ninth chapter of Romans after he said, Jacob have I loved, God said, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated, teaching the purpose of God according to election. Jacob he was loving, Esau he was hating. Hating in this case meaning to pass by, to not choose. He says, after I hated Jacob, loved Jacob and hated Esau, the question is raised, what then? Is there unrighteousness with God? That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? The best minds in the world would say that's unfair. Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Strongest language possible to say, no way. That isn't unfair. It may take eternity to explain why. Right now, we take God's word for it. It is not unfair. Second objection. The doctrine of election, some say, contradicts Universal texts such as John 3.16, such as 2 Peter 3.9 that says uh, God is willing that all come to repentance, you know, not willing that any should perish. Well, let's look at a couple of those very quickly. I know it's getting awful close to lunchtime, unfortunately. Why does that clock move so fast on Sunday morning? Because <laughs> I'd rather it went along swiftly than slowly. It's horrible being in this pulpit when you look at your watch and think you've been at it an hour and it's about 15 minutes after 11. <laughs> That's terrible. I'm sure it's worse for you than it is for the preacher on days like that. Let's look at John 3.16 just a minute. Everybody knows it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world. Throughout the Bible, you find the word world used numerous ways. Even in our day, the word world is used in many ways. We may talk of the social world, the business world, the medical world, the religious world. We must define the world that's under consideration. One person I know was not included in that world, at least one I know. And that's a man by the name of Esau. God didn't love him. We further have a problem in John chapter 17 when, or 1 John chapter, well, in the book of 1 John, Jesus Christ inspired John to say, love not the world. What, John? You tell us not to love the world when God loved the world? Puzzler, isn't it? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. You are not to love the world, but God loved the world. Two different worlds. Okay. For God so loved the world, God so loved the world. I am persuaded today because of the fact God hated Esau, who was not elect, and God hates all workers of iniquity, according to the book of Psalms. I'm persuaded today that the world that he loves is the world of his elect. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Did Jesus Christ come to die for everybody, all men in general? or some men in particular. See, we're getting into some real nitty-gritty truths here that separate men from boys, as the saying is. Jesus Christ came to die specifically for the elect, and His death ensures they'll all be there. Not their belief, not their choice, not their action, not their works. His sacrifice. That's the insurance. Okay? God so loved the world of his elect that he gave his only begotten son. 
The world that he loved is the world to whom he gave his son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish. You say, well, there it is. Anybody who will believe can have everlasting life. You're right. Anybody who will believe can have eternal life. Who will believe? Who was chosen, you know, over there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2? You know what it said about belief in the truth? Who is it? The one's chosen to so do. That whosoever believeth in him, who will believe? The elect. Even John 3.16 teaches election. It's not a verse we have to throw out of the Bible to believe this doctrine. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. He says, God is uh, not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Okay? Sounds like God is up in heaven saying, I just wish with all of my being that all of these creatures would accept me and live with me in heaven. Well, it sounds like, doesn't it? Of course, anything more than a casual reading will start turning up other things. What does he say? God is long-suffering to whom? Us word. Who's Peter writing to? Remember? Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. First Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Second Peter chapter 1 begins by saying, I'm writing to the same people, so we know he's writing to the elect. God is long-suffering to the elect, not willing that any of whom the elect should perish. God has promised that no elect person shall perish. It's not some flimsy wish of a God who would like to run things according to His plan, but it is the purpose of a God who works all things after the counsel of His own will, not willing that any of the elect should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Every one of God's elect will come to repentance in the new birth. See that? You don't have to throw that verse out either. Revelation 22, about the, what is it, about the 19th verse? Sometimes we stumble on that one. He says, 17th verse, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. Amen. The Holy Spirit says, Come, and the bride, the church, says, Come. The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come. And let him that is athirst, Come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. You say, well, that doesn't sound like election to me. It sounds like God saying anybody who wants to come can. Well, he is. But again, the question is, who wants to come? The elect, right? Now, the Bible just makes all kinds of sense. Don't try to look for a contradiction. You may find what you think is one, but you'll never find one that truly is. It was conceived in the mind of a God in whom there is no contradiction. And so from cover to cover, the Bible teaches that God elected his people before the foundation of the world. I've just got to give you about three more quickies, real quickies. These are things I've heard people say to me to say, try to explain away the doctrine of election. You'll run into these two, probably already have. Some will say, well, election did take place. But what happened is God, before the world began, looked down and saw who was good 
and who is bad, and he chose the good. Or they may say, God looked down and saw who would accept, who would repent, who would believe, and he chose them. But you know what Psalm 53 verse 2 tells us? We talked about that last week. God did look down. Psalm 53 verses 2 and 3, God did look down. But what did he see? All kinds of people accepting him at revival meetings all over the world. No, God didn't see that. They say, all these people being baptized like crazy, just all over the place, just splashing water everywhere. Did he see that? No. When God looked down, he saw the whole race going astray. Everybody in that pit that we started out talking about, that's what he saw. So you cannot today tell me that election is based on some foreseen good in man. It is based on God's sovereign choice. Secondly, some will say, well, yes, God made a choice before the world began, but he chose everybody. And it's up to you to make sure you secure it. I've had this line of reasoning uh, brought to my attention. God chose everybody. Every human being is a chosen vessel of God. Is that true? First of all, the term choice itself necessarily implies the selection of some, the bypassing of others. You go to the grocery store, you choose rainbow over purity when you're at the bread counter. You've chosen one and left out another. You brethren in the church chose the lady to whom you're married. There may have been other girls in the house. You chose one. You didn't choose them all. The word choice itself implies the rejection of some, right? When we get ready to elect a president this fall, that's called election, isn't it? Matter of fact, my dad had a little conversation with a fellow one time. He said, uh, he was a young fellow. He said, I, I've learned a lot about the Bible. I think I can talk about most any subject in the Bible. Dad said, good, let's talk about election. He said, oh, I never talk about politics. <laughs> this fall, we will conduct an election. Wouldn't it be foolish if we came to the point in this nation and said, well, you know, there's such rivalry. This nation is so divided between Democrats and Republicans. Why don't we just choose them both? Well, you and I know that's not choice. That's compromise. Say, God chose everybody? No, he didn't compromise. He chose his people. God chose his people. And finally, I mentioned this one earlier. Someone else will say, God chose you, but the devil also chose you. And now it's up to you to break the tie. Someone brought that up to me one time. God voted for you. The devil voted for you. You must cast the deciding vote. Now he said, I know what you're going to do. I said, what do you think I'm going to do? He said, you are going to sit there and you're going to just weave all kinds of scriptures and you're going to talk, get deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper over the head and try to figure out God and all this stuff. I bet you can't say it as simply as that. I said, I can say it simpler than that. God chose you. That settles it. <laughs> You had a whole bunch more words than that. God chose you, the devil chose you, now you've got to decide. Nope. God chose you, that settles it. The doctrine of election. What does it mean to us personally? As Christians, as believers in Christ, 
who are given to walk through this world with other Christians who do not believe this doctrine. We must do it lovingly, cheerfully, invitingly. But what does the doctrine mean to you and to me right now? Well, I believe that the doctrine of election, which is anchored in a Christ who existed before the world began, should be the greatest assurance to us that we could possibly know that if we were loved by God before the world began enough to settle the destiny of man forever, we better know that there aren't any kind of problems we're going to face now that God isn't also interested in. If God chose you, He will cause you to approach into Him, draw you into sacred nearness with Him, love you freely, and ultimately take you to be with Him. It's the greatest doctrine in the world to live by, and it's even better to die by. It recognizes at the time of death that salvation is not based upon the works of this individual, but upon the works of Christ. When my grandfather came to press a dying pillow, a preacher was in the room talking to the other person in the other bed, and and then came over and looked at my grandfather and said, I know that you're a good man. I can tell by looking, I can tell by the interaction of your family that you are a good man. I'm told that my grandfather was barely able to speak above a whisper and he said, No, no good. (laughs) If you see your sin today and you know that in and of yourself you are no good, the doctrine that God elected people that weren't any good to make them good is the greatest comfort you will ever encounter in this world. If you love the God of electing love, you have a responsibility to follow Him and to serve Him and to obey Him. And I would encourage you to come and express your desire for baptism if you've not taken that step already. Let's stand to sing. Very eloquently stated, by the way. Number 33, as we sing. In songs outside.